So um, I've heard before, and I was fact-checking this this morning, and it may, not, may or may not be true, but have you ever heard that uh, the Inuit people, the you know, Eskimo people, have 50 words for snow? Have you ever heard this factoid before? And the idea is that there's so much of it that there's a very specialized vocabulary for it, and there's different words for you know, snowflakes, drifting snow, different types of, of snow. Um, all of this, when you have a lot of something, you develop a very detailed vocabulary for it. And I was thinking about that because I'm thinking about the, the, the very detailed way or the very colorful way we have of describing when we get into a difficult situation. So if you are in, if you're facing trouble of some kind, and it could be trouble you created or trouble that someone else created for you, and it could be something like financial trouble, it could be health problems, it could be something going on at home or with family or work-related or, or whatever it might be, but when you're in a difficult situation or you are facing trouble, we have lots of phrases that we use to describe your situation. And I want you to think about what some of the phrases might be, and I'll give you some, some ones to start with, and then I'm going to ask for responses from you of other ones that you could use. But we could say, well, I'm in deep trouble. That would be one way of describing being in a difficult situation. You could say, I'm in a pickle, or I'm in a jam. I don't know why there's so many food-related ones, right? But I'm in a pickle or I'm in a jam. Um, I, I, I'm going to help you with one because I want to I make sure it's like safe for church, right? It's up a creek without a paddle, right? If you've heard that one before, just for, you know, in this context, it doesn't have to be a creek that has a name. It's, a, it's just up a creek, right? Without a paddle. Any other phrases like that come to mind when you're like in trouble, those kind of phrases used to describe it? Any, what's that? In hot water. In hot water. A world of hurt. That's right. That's a good one. In the doghouse. Okay, that's a good one as well. Any other ones? In a bind? How about between a rock and a hard place? In a tight spot. Any other ones? In over your head. That's a great one. One last chance. Those are all good. I'm not looking for a particular answer, but you have great suggestions. Yeah, in over your head. Uh, in a bind, in a tight spot, in hot water, all of these are in the doghouse would be a good one, right? That one's kind of specific, right, uh, to more re- relational ones. But these are, these are ways that we describe being in a difficult uh, situation. And when we look at the story that, that Kylan introduced for us this morning in Exodus 14, so go ahead and get there in your Bibles, um, open your Bibles or turn your Bible on, whatever the case may be, and get ready for that. We're going to be in Exodus 14 verse 1 for just a moment. But when we join the Israelites in this story, they are in a bind. They're in a tight spot. They're between a rock and a hard place. They are in trouble. They're in deep trouble. They're up a creek, you might say, without a paddle. They are in a pickle. They're in a jam. They're they're in this situation where they are between the sea and an army. And they don't know what they're going to do. And they do what Kylan suggested this morning. They cry out to God, which is an amazing thing to do when you find yourself in a pickle. But in this story, they've been led out of slavery in Egypt for generations, hundreds of years, just generational slavery. That's what their life was like. They, they had heard stories of the true God, but it's been many years. And now God, through his miraculous mighty hand, which we talked about last week in our story about the 10 plagues, God delivers them, and God brings them out of slavery into freedom. But as he leads them, as he guides them, he brings them to this place where they are in a difficult situation. 
and they cry out to God. But there's also this whole confusion about what they're feeling and what they're even believing in this moment. And as we see, we're going we're gonna to see some very practical lessons for us. What do you do when you don't know what to do? What do you do when you are facing trouble? You've been, you're, you find yourself in a situation of your creation or of not, not your creation, and you don't know what to do. What do you do when you don't know what to do? We're in the series, Bible Stories. Amazing title, because it's stories from the Bible. Um, that's my little joke, is that I'm not a big fan of the title that I came up with. But um, we're in this series. We're looking at all these Old Testament stories leading up to Christmas. And we're seeing Jesus in these Old Testament stories because Jesus saw them as speaking about him. And we're, we're trying to find where, where is, what, what can we learn about our relationship with Jesus? What can we learn about Jesus from these stories? And we've been spending, this is our third and final week on the Exodus story. And we're going to move on uh, next week to the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. But these are stories we tell our children. These are stories that you might have heard for the first time as a young child. And we're taking a fresh look at them and learning these lessons about what, what can we learn about Jesus specifically as we head towards the Christmas season. So with all that in mind, Exodus 14, verses 1 through 14. Then the Lord said to Moses... Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with them and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped at the sea by Pihahirath in front of Belzephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, "'Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not... What, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent." This is a powerful story, and we'll talk about the, the significance of the story throughout the scriptures later at the end of the message. But this story for us, there's, there's a lot going on here in the story. And I, I find Pharaoh's question that he asks, they're like, they're, they're evaluating what's happened for them. The 10 plagues have happened. The Israel has gone free. They're leaving their, their many years of slavery. They're going out towards the promised land. They're headed towards their own place. They get to be God's people in God's place with God as their king, and they're heading out that way. And Pharaoh goes, what, what have we done? 
I can't believe we let all of them go from serving us, which is a really like casual way of mentioning, you know, generations of slavery, right? They were serving us, you know. Now they were, they were slaves, but they were doing all this work that was important for the Egyptian economy. But he's kind of confused for a moment, like, wow, why did we do this? I don't remember what the reason was for us letting them go like this. And it's like, so are you serious, Pharaoh? I'll give you 10 good reasons, you know, why you guys made this decision to let them go, right? This was, God was judging you and you were letting them go. The plagues were sent. Those were the reasons why you let them go. But now Israel is on the seashore, right? They're camped there and they, an army comes. And the description of the army here is really interesting. He says he took his, uh, took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. There's several, a lot of memories that stand out to me from Bible college, but one lecture I will never forget was when I was in Bible college, we had a professor that gave a very detailed lecture about the Egyptian chariot technology. And he was talking about, we, we think now like, oh man, we've got all this amazing modern technology, but the Egyptian chariot was, was a marvel of engineering and technology. I've got a picture of, of what, this is a figurine, but it's pretty accurate looking depiction of what the Egyptian chariot was. It was lightweight. It was, it was the result of many years of trial and error, trying to discover which is the, the right balance of material, the wood that goes into the chariot, the armor that goes on it. There, there was the horses, there was two horses that would pull the chariots and they were matched up by size and speed. The chariots were lightweight enough to be fast, and they were very fast. And Egypt had really mastered the technology of the chariot at this time. This was peak military technology, and with their chariot army, they were able to dominate just about any other nation around them. Even like the, the, the number of spokes on the wheels of the chariot and how many wheels the chariot should have, this was all researched and figured out what, the six-spoke wheel was a breakthrough in technology for the Egyptians at this time. Because it was strong enough and it was the, made it lightweight enough material where it could go over different kinds of terrain, but the, having six spokes instead of five or four, this was all researched and, and figured out what was the best. You know, how do you attach those chariots well or the wheels to the chariot? The charioteers, the people who drove them and, and battled on top of them, were highly trained and were treated um, very well by the Egyptian culture. They were paid well and they were well respected. And it was a whole class of people in Egypt that were just respected and honored as the charioteers, these warriors. One of them would drive the chariot and the other one would be the warrior on the battle platform that would go and pursue the enemies and, and attack the enemies around there. There'd be spears, there'd be arrows. These people were highly trained to be able to hit targets while they were moving. This was peak military technology at the time. And it says there's 600 of the chosen chariots and there's also the other chariots, right? So there's the, the 600 of the, of the best of the best. And then all the entire Egyptian army is pursuing Israel. And it's the, the, the best of the best, one of the best uh, armies assembled in the world up until this point is coming after them. When we think about being in a rock, in a, between a rock and a hard place or being in a tight spot or being in a pickle, this is, they're quite they're, they're very much there. This is like, we get word that, that, you know, the military is coming our direction. We're in a vulnerable spot with our, you know, not, not just the men, but the women and the children as well, right? We're, we're in this dangerous, vulnerable 
spot with the, the best of the best militarily coming to attack them. This would be like what we'd, we'd be feeling in that moment. All the metaphors we were coming up with together, right, about being in trouble fit this situation. And the response of the Israelites is very interesting because they, they say some things that aren't true, but they're speaking out of fear, right? They're, they're just, they're terrified. And they're, they're, in, they're in danger. They are definitely in a, in a dangerous situation viewed not from God's perspective, viewed from just on the ground, what they're feeling, what they're ex- experiencing in this moment. And there's this emotional and spiritual stew that they're just in the middle of, and they don't even know what to, what to do with themselves. And they, they do cry out to God, but they're feeling intense fear, and they start saying things that are not true to Moses. Moses, didn't we say, and then they quote something they never said to him. We said we'd actually rather stay in, in, in Egypt. We kind of liked serving the Egyptians. And in fact, I think I remember saying that to you, that uh, we'd rather stay in, in Egypt as slaves and let our children grow up that way and their children grow up that way, rather than be in this situation. We, told, we were worried this was going to happen. I think we even said this to you, like, what do you, why did you lead us out here where this bad, horrible thing was going to happen to us. Moses, this is your fault. And often fear and deception and, and kind of lies, even, even the lies we tell ourselves, they go hand in hand, don't they? We, we get ourselves in this, we're fearful, and we're not seeing clearly, we're not seeing the truth. We're not seeing what's real. We, we, we cry out in fear, and, and it's just this, all the, the lies that go with it. In a confusing environment, when you're in a tight spot, when you're in a difficult situation, lies just go hand in hand with that. And we have an enemy, the enemy of our soul, who's, he is the deceiver. Jesus called him the father of lies. And in a fearful situation, we are susceptible to the lies of the enemy and to deception even more than we would in a normal environment. And we start even convincing ourselves of the truth of those things. We, I, Moses, we said this to you. I don't think they were just making that up or, or just lying just to lie. I think they probably believed that. I thought I remember saying this to you, Moses, that we didn't want to be, I was so worried about what could happen in the wilderness that I thought I even said this to you, that we didn't, we weren't, don't lead us, lead us out of Egypt because now we're in danger and I was worried this was going to happen and I think I said that to you. Like, I don't, I don't know what they believed or what they thought in that moment, but fear and lies... They really get connected, don't they? And then they just expand. It's like the the lies that we believe make us even more fearful. And they're just in the mix of this panicky, confusing situation. And they did what we should do in that environment. As much as you could say about them being complainers, as as Kylan was mentioning, and and, and even them, them complaining to him right there, they did the right thing, and it's what we should do when we find ourselves in a difficult situation. They cried out, to God. God help us. They cried out to the Lord. And I don't know that they factored God into the situation very thoroughly, but it's like that's what you do when you're in trouble, right? Just like, God help, please help me. And that's, that's good. Like That's a good instinct. And I think even atheists have that instinct, right? People that wouldn't even claim they believe in God, they're like, if you're in a really tough situation, and you're really panicking, might as well, might try it, you know, might as well throw that one out there and say, God, please help me with this. I don't know that they had a lot of confidence that God was going to help them. I don't know what they, what they were feeling exactly in that moment, but they at least started with the right thing that we should start with as well. 
When you find yourself in trouble, when you find yourself in difficulty, cry out to the Lord. When we're feeling that fear, when we're feeling like, I don't know what, which way's up or what's true, what's false, cry out to the Lord. Do that. And sometimes that's as far as our faith goes, but I think that's at least a good starting spot. And sometimes that's enough. But sometimes God brings someone into our path who reminds us. And guess what? Sometimes you need to be the person who reminds other people of what's true in that moment. And that's exactly what Moses does. And I love the words that Moses gives the children of Israel. It's in verses 13 and 14. I want to read them again to make sure I get them exactly right. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. I, that's a very full of faith way of telling them to just to shut up, right? It's like, okay, guys, you're complaining, you're fearful. Shh. But he says it in a much better way than just that, right? He says, you, you just need to be silent. You need to, don't be afraid. Stand firm. Don't scatter. Stand firm. Fear not. And then look, watch. I want you to notice the way God delivers you from this situation. See the salvation of the Lord. The Egyptians you see today, the thing that's causing you all that fear, God's going to deal decisively with them in such a way that you will never see them again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Fear not, stand firm. You need these words sometimes from, from Moses. God's word to you. When you're feeling like you're in a tight spot, you're feeling like you're in a difficult situation, you're way in over your head, you're in the doghouse, you're whatever it may be. You're not. Stand firm. Cry out to God. See the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Let's see how God fights for them. We're going to read verses 15 through the end of the chapter. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a, into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, "'Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians.' Then the Lord said to Moses, 
Stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters, water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This story is powerful, and there's a lot for us in the, the, that I want us to notice in this story. But one of the things is that they're told here, he, he, in, in response to Moses crying out to the Lord, he says, why are you crying out to me? I want you to get moving. I want you to just start, start going. And then I want you to hold up your hand over the seas. The seas will part. You'll, you'll be able to cover, walk through on dry ground. You know, overnight... The, the, the sea parts, the sea is dry enough for them to be able to walk through on what used to be the, the, the bed of the sea or the, you know, the underground part of, or the under the water part of it. They're able to travel through all the thousands of Israelites and move through. Now, I find it very interesting that in chapter 13, we're told specifically that God brought them to this place specifically. God brought them there for a reason. It wasn't an accident. They didn't get like, they didn't get lost. It wasn't like their GPS misled them or they were asking, you know, like, should we go this way or this way? I don't know. Let's flip a coin. You know, let's go. They were following the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. When it moved, they moved. And by the way, how, how nice would that be, right? It's like, I, I'm, I'm not sure how the traffic's going to be today on my commute to work. And it's like, where's the, where's the pillar of cloud going? I'll just follow that. That'll take me the best way every time. Or whatever, whenever you're trying to make a decision about anything in life. You know, it's like, well, what's the pillar doing? Just trust the pillar, you know, follow that thing. But they had that. They had, they had this pillar of, uh, again, cloud by day, fire by night, that was pointing them about where they should go. And God had them right where he wanted them. God led them deliberately into this situation where they were between a rock and a hard place. They were between the sea and cliffs behind them and a narrow valley that the Egyptian army was marching through and they had no way of escape. God wanted them right there. It wasn't a surprise to God. It wasn't an accident that they ended up in that exact situation. It wasn't an accident that any chance of escape that they had behind them that didn't involve going across a body of water was cut off. Right? They were not lost. They were led there by God. Chapter 13 makes it explicit. Led by cloud and fire. They're in a tight spot. They're vulnerable. They're in danger even in their perspective. But it's on purpose. That God has a plan for this. And when, we, when you think about troubles, when you think about difficult situations that you find yourself in, we, we, the, the idea of fairness comes up pretty quickly. Is this fair of God to allow this? or cause this, or bring this into my life, or, or at least not prevent it? Is that fair of God? Was it fair of him to do that to the Israelites, to put them in that really difficult, very scary situation? And they were left in that situation with no other option but to trust him. And that's what they needed in that moment. They, they, they had seen God work powerfully to deliver them out of Egypt, 
but they were on a journey that was just beginning. And God was going to take them through many years in the wilderness and his provision every step of the way. And they needed to learn to trust God. And they were brought in this situation where that was the only option. There's nothing they could do to, to change their situation. They had to trust God and God had a plan for them and they needed to learn to trust him. And I would say like when we think about this idea of fairness, we think about this idea of being brought into a difficult situation or, or finding ourselves in a difficult situation. If you, if you ever wonder about fairness of God, just I always, I always tell people when you're, when you're doubting, is God fair or where is he during this time? It's always remember God's character that God is good, and that God loves you. And God knows how this whole thing plays out. And God has a plan, and his plan involves the difficult situation you're in. And you can trust that. You can lean on that. And there's three things specifically that God says about what he's going to do in this story with the, with the Egyptians. He says, I'm going to receive glory. The, the people are going to trust me more. And I'm going to defeat the Egyptians once and for all. Uh, the, the, this idea of trust, right, that's how it results for them, is that they, they saw that, that God provided for them, made a dry path through the middle of what, what something that was covered by water. They walked through, they get to the other side, and they see the water. Uh, the description is just mind-blowing. The water being a wall to them on their right hand, and on their left, walls of water. We've seen depictions of this. If you've seen The Prince of Egypt, the animated movie, or you've seen the Ten Commandments, the Charlton Heston movie, you know, of this, this wall of water, this amazing display of God's power and glory. And what it must have done for them in that moment of like trying to see where God fit amongst all the Egyptian gods that was what all they knew for all those years that God is far more powerful than any rivals that, that he might have. And the faith that grew in their hearts when they experienced this amazing provision by God. And they saw God's glory and they trusted him more. And the, and the Egyptians were defeated once and for all. If this didn't happen, this story, the rest of the Exodus story would have had probably moments of the Egyptian army once again caught up to them in the wilderness and several thousand were transported back to slavery. And, or or they, they just battle after battle after battle of having to battle the Egyptians constantly. But God dealt with them once and for all. He not only had the Israelites right where he wanted them, he had the Egyptians right where he wanted them. And God was going to defeat the enemies in this decisive moment. James 1, we, we studied that this summer. It, it starts off with these amazing words, count it all joy when you face tr troubles and, or trials of various kinds because you know that the, I should probably read it because I'm not remembering the words. Uh, Hebrews, I, let's, I thought I was going to be able to pull it up. Nope, in my head. Partially there, but not all the way there. So James, James chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We studied this. We spent a summer talking about practical faith and going through the book of James. And that it starts off with this incredible command that seems so difficult for us, that when you face trials and troubles of various kinds, I want you to be joyful about them. Because you know that God is going to use this thing that you'd rather not be experiencing to grow your faith. It's going to test your faith. 
And your faith will be tested, but when it is tested, it will be more steadfast. It'll be more secure. It'll be more solid. And that steadfastness will grow. That's a part of your spiritual maturity process that God takes those trials and builds growth out of them. And that's the plan. And so if that's true, you can actually feel joyful when you're in a tight spot or you're in a pickle. When you're between a rock and a hard place. Right? Is that really? Can we really be like that? I want you to imagine for a moment what, what would it be like if the next time you faced a difficult situation, you felt in, in over your head, you felt up a creek without a paddle? What would it be like if there was a glimmer of joy in the middle of that, where you go, God has me right where he wants me, and God's going to use even this to do something. God's going to, I need to, to, to stand firm, I need to fear not, and I need to see the salvation of my God. And I just need to be silent and trust him. What would it be like if when you were in a, a difficult situation, you had that glimmer of joy underneath the surface of all of that? How powerful would that be for the troubles you face? The game changer. The very fact that Moses got to be a part of this incredible thing when he thought he was so unequipped and he's just like, I'm not, I'm, I failed at the delivering my people out of slavery job before and now here I am. The very fact that he got to experience that is an amazing thing. That he got to be the person that stood up there and God's like, I'm going to wait for you to raise your hand and raise the staff and then when you do that, I'm going to do this miraculous thing. That's amazing that Moses got to be a part of this of this event and this God's, God's provision and that God used him to be the leader and to be, you know, kind of this visual representation of God's power through his miraculous provision. That's so cool. I, I imagine sometimes what heaven might be like and one of the things I wonder, you know, I, I can't point to a verse where this could be possible, but I wonder if like when we get to heaven, we can see this event replayed somehow. Like God, can we call up the video of the time that you parted the Red Sea. And I'd like to, to watch this for myself to see exactly how you did it. Can, can we pull that up? Maybe some kind of virtual reality situation or for you Trekkies out there, a holodeck, you know, you get to be standing there on the, on the seashore. But I imagine if we, if we had footage of this event, the parting of the Red Sea, we had drone footage of it, there'd be so many things that would stand out. There'd be the wall of water on their right and on their left. And we've seen this depicted, like I said, in those movies, and it's amazing. This wall of water, just this massive number of people walking between the walls of water, going from one shore to the other shore, and that would look impressive on drone footage, wall of water, people going across, and then like an army shining, you know, things glinting off, the sunlight off of their armor behind them, that would look impressive on, a, on drone footage. But what would be one of the least impressive things is on the drone footage, there'd be a little guy standing on the shore of the sea with what looks like just a stick in his hand and his arms up. And that'd be like the, the least impressive part of that amazing footage, right? What Moses was doing was not impressive, the scale of that, but the fact that God let him be a part of the story he was telling is so impressive and so exciting for us to consider. Guy with a stick on the edge of that, you know, hey, I'm gonna do it. And God let him be a part of this amazing provision of God's salvation for other people. And I think for us, 
I mean, there's a lesson in there for me and there's a lesson in there for you that God invites us to be a part of his story and God invites us to be a part of his salvation that he provides for other people. And we're just invited into this huge thing that he's doing. And we're not impressive, we're not amazing, but, but God is. And God invites us to be a part of what he's doing. And Moses was that person who spoke truth in the moment before this. Hey, Israelites, you're terrified. You're saying stuff that's not true. You and I both know that's not true, Israelites. You didn't say that. But stand firm, fear not. See the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see them again. This huge faith in this moment to be able to say to these, his people that he loved, people that he was there to help, trust God. And who, there may be someone that, that God is bringing to mind for you that you need to be the Moses for. They're going through a difficult situation. They're afraid. They're not even believing the truth right now. They're saying stuff that's not even true. And maybe you need to be the reminder of what is true for them. Or maybe God wants you to tell, share your faith with somebody, to give them the, the to, to have a conversation, a spiritual conversation with a coworker or a neighbor, family member. So this is how God has taken care of me. This is the way I've seen God work in my life. And man, I, I just want that for you. I think a relationship with God would make a huge difference for you. Maybe God wants you to be a part of his story in a, in a more direct way than you are currently. We, we set our framework for this series, the Bible stories, that every story whispers his name. And so I want to talk about where we see Jesus in this story. Because it's more than just a provision of God providing, you know, bringing his people out of slavery. It's more than just meeting their practical needs. It also forms, it's a foundational story in the, in the, in the Bible. It's all over the Old Testament. There's something like 25 more references to this story in the Old Testament alone. And it comes up in the Psalms. It's written into the worship music of the people of Israel that they should worship God because he's the one who parted the Red Sea and led his people into freedom. Um, we know as well that the New Testament writers refer to this story as an example for followers of Christ as a symbol of salvation. Not only this event, not only this thing that happened, not only the story they would tell, but also a picture for us of what Jesus has done for us. Paul, Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. that This is a picture of our salvation. This is being brought from slavery into freedom. This is through the Red Sea, God's provision for us, that in a moment he rescues his people and we're brought into freedom from slavery. But also, it's beyond that, right? In Egypt, things were bad. They were in danger of living their lives in slavery and, and passing that on yet another generation, lives of slavery. But now they were in this situation where they were not just facing going back into slavery, but also facing complete destruction and death at the hands of the Egyptian armies. And that, in a spiritual sense, was our situation. Slaves to sin and facing death and separation from God. If it's not for God's miraculous provision for them, if God didn't come through for us in a major way, we'd be slaves to sin and facing death. But when we needed him the most... Jesus Christ came down and he lived with us and he, he provided salvation for us on the cross. And with this decisive moment, he gave us freedom and salvation. And the, shortly before the cross, the story that I've referred to many times that I, that I just love, in Luke chapter 9, this is the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John are up there with them on this mountain and they get a glimpse of what 
Jesus is really doing and who Jesus really is. And it says in Luke 9, 29 to 31, as he was praying that he is Jesus, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Specifically, the Greek word that is translated as departure here is the word exodus. What Moses and Elijah were speaking with Jesus about on the mountain was, Jesus, you're about to lead a different exodus, aren't you? You're about to lead a new exit, and let's talk about it together. What Elijah and Moses were like just dreaming about someday that the Messiah would come and do for his people, they're like, you're here to do that now. You're about to bring people out of slavery and into freedom, into a relationship with God. Jesus was about to lead a different exodus, and he met with Moses before he did it. Isn't that beautiful? The, the deliverance through the Red Sea, as I mentioned, shows up in the Psalms, and it, it, it was fuel for the worship of Israel. And we're about to spend some, a few more moments worshiping together. Uh, we're about to lift up our voices and sing praises to God and to, to worship him for being our deliverer. But the Israelites were also given a, a celebration, a, a remembrance built into their life together as a nation, and that was the Passover We talked about that last week, that they'd be given this meal to remember the way that God provided a substitute sacrifice for them, and he passed over um, their households. And while they ate a meal and were provided for, God was providing deliverance for them. And they had this thing built into their rhythm of life, and our our communion is a direct descendant of that. When Jesus came and lived amongst humanity um, in in the New Testament, we have this story of him with his disciples gathered around that Passover meal. And he says, I'm, I'm making a new covenant, a new, co- a new promise that I'm making to humanity. And communion is our command from, from Scripture to celebrate that and to remember God's provision, God's salvation, the way that God provided for his people and delivered us from death to life, from slavery to freedom. And we're going to celebrate that together in a moment. Would you stand with me and we're going to pray together? Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these stories, Lord, that are these big, exciting stories of provision, Lord, but more than that are even our echoes of what Jesus would come to do for us and reminders of who we are and our identity and and who Jesus is. And so, Lord, I thank you for the gift of your son. I thank you for the salvation that that was provided through, through our Savior. And Lord, I pray that it would fuel our worship I pray that it would fuel our celebration of, and, and our gratitude of who you are and what you've come to do for us and the fact that we get to be in a relationship with you. And Lord, may all of that cause us to sing praises to you. And Lord, as we celebrate communion in a few moments, I pray that you would, you would help us to know that we can trust you. You are our provider. We can fear not. We can stand firm. We can see the salvation of the Lord. And Lord, bring us closer to you. Help us to trust you more. Use the trials that we brought in here with us today, the things that we're experiencing, the things that were were dragging us down as we were walking through these doors today. Lord, to be something that just makes us stronger, that we can even find joy in the trials because we know that you are good, that you have a plan, and that we can trust you. Lord, we thank you so much for this wonderful story from your word. And I pray that you bless us now as we worship you and as we celebrate communion. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing.